Thanks for tuning in to Hungry Minds, a podcast about the power of curiosity and questions. My name is Aron Levasseur, and in this episode, I'm talking with Crystal Chang Cohen, a lecturer in the Global Studies program at UC Berkeley. Our conversation focuses on China today and how the past shapes the present. Without further delay, I bring you Crystal Chang Cohen. Crystal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. This has been, it feels like a year in, in, in the making. And so just to get your potted bio, you're a lecturer at UC Berkeley in International Area Studies. Sounds like an interdisciplinary program. So just to unpack that a little bit more, what, what specifically do you teach? Yeah. Okay. Well, I teach a few different classes. I teach a senior thesis seminar, which is really exciting uh, because I help students develop their own research project over a year. That's one class I teach. This semester, I also taught a class about gender and women's issues in mm. Asia, which is like my favorite class to teach. Cool. And I'm just reading those exams now. And it brings tears to my eyes as a teacher. <laughs> you probably have that experience too, yeah. right? And I also teach a class on China and India, mm. where I compare the contemporary political and economic development of those two countries. In the spring, I will teach a class that's just about China, actually. So this is timely. I've been thinking about China a lot. And I'll teach a class called uh, Contemporary Political Contemporary Theories of Political Economy wow. in the spring. Cool. So that's looking at um, theorists of the 20th century and 21st century yeah. and thinking about the global economy. Wow. Well, any of those topics would be fascinating to discuss. Uh, however, we are going to zero in on China. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons was uh, I immediately thought of you uh, with the Daryl Morey tweet. And we'll get to that in a moment. But for those that don't know who Daryl Morey is, he's general manager of the Houston Rockets and basketball, NBA basketball is huge in China. And so I just, there, there was a bit of fallout from that, uh, if you will. And so we'll get there uh, in a moment. But, uh, but that is in particular what I wanted to get a sense of. How, however, we need to rewind the tape a bit and, and just look at why, why is China important? Like why, whether it be in school, outside of school, like why is it a fascinating uh, place, culture to study, to learn about? I'll tell you what I tell my students. Of course, every individual's interest in China will vary. Right, yeah. But I tell my students that, look, China's home to one in five people in the world, right? One in five people on this earth lives in China. So it's the largest country. It also will soon have the largest economy. And that's probably the bigger deal today because the United States has been the preeminent economy for 100 years, right? right. I mean, since World War One, This is the first time another country is really starting to challenge American preeminence in terms yeah. of the economy. And that's a big deal. Sure. I mean, people thought this was happening in the 80s with Japan, but this is at a whole nother level. Yeah. So it's interesting to study for that reason and to think about how did China become such an economic powerhouse, right? right. This is a country which in 1970 was one of the poorest in the world. So how was it in 40, 50 years it has risen from right. poverty to, you know, one of the the most successful economies, and I think that's what's so interesting to study, especially because it was communist and yeah. is ostensibly still communist. So, how did this communist right. country become uh, the economically 
right. most powerful country in the world. That's fascinating, right? Yeah, its trajectory seems to have defied logic in a lot of yes. ways. It's meteoric growth, but also, and this is perhaps a good place to uh, focus in on looking at its political system, communism, uh, and then also looking at what is a more recent, it seems, uh, adoption, which is some version of capitalism or free market economy. And it seemed like there was an assumption, never shall the twains meet. And yet it seems they really have. There's a really interesting synthesis going on. So can you uh, give us a background? So what exactly for people that um, may have not been taken a high school political science class for a while, communism, what exactly, how did communism emerge in China and how has it been able to maintain that system for so long? Where oh. so many other, at least in, in the West, in, in Eastern Europe, it collapsed. Mm -hmm. How come it's alive and well, or seemingly well in China? Yeah, well, so back in the 20s, Mao Zedong mm -hmm. and some of the other intellectuals, I think really gravitated towards communism as an ideology because of its anti-imperial stance, mm -hmm. right? They saw China as being a country that was invaded by foreign powers in the Opium Wars and then by Japan. And when the Soviets were successful in their revolution in 1917, they thought, oh, there really is an alternative model to Western-style capitalism, which they had always found exploitative, sure. right? And so Marx and Lenin gave them a way out of um, the old feudal economy into a modern economy, but that wasn't, wasn't Western capitalism, Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so anyway, that's where the communists first got their inspiration. And of course, there was a big civil war in China after World War II ended between the communists and Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalists. And the communists were ultimately victorious, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek ended up fleeing to Taiwan. We won't go into those details, but that's why there are two Chinas, right? Yeah, There's right. Republic of China and Taiwan, People's Republic of China on the mainland. So that was 1949. Of course, since then, China's been communist. And yes, the same political party's been in charge, but I think what's really important to understand, and it's not often understood, is that what does being communist really mean anymore yeah. as an ideology? Yes, the Communist Party still pays lip service to communism as the guiding ideology, but that's really lost its meaning for most people, right? Uh, it has a more capitalist type economy, although they don't call it that. They call it socialism with Chinese characteristics, huh. right? Yeah. They don't say it's a communist economy. They don't say it's yeah. a capitalist economy. They say it's socialist with Chinese characteristics. Hmm. So how has it survived for so long? Well, it's been remarkable at adapting to change. Hmm. So the 50s and 60s and 70s were a tumultuous time in China, which under Mao was very inward looking. But after Mao dies at the end of the Cultural Revolution, Deng Xiaoping comes into power and he says, look, he was the reformer. We have to change China. We have to join the world in the 80s. So he made a lot of big changes. So where the government used to control all aspects of production and labor, they started to open that up a little bit. And he started to make some small gradual changes in the late 70s. And he managed to do these small reforms incrementally while still holding on to political power. Hmm. And I won't go into all the details of exactly how that worked, but it was a huge experiment. No one had done it up to that point. Right. There was no model. This was before the Soviet Union falls, right? This is 1978. And he didn't have a roadmap or a blueprint. It was sort of, the, what Deng Xiaoping used to say, it's called 
groping for stones while crossing the river. Yeah. You don't know how to get across the river, (laughs) but you're just looking for one stone Mm. at a time, right? To slowly make your way across. And that's really what he did. Some things worked well, some things didn't. But he had the humility humility of the time to follow those reforms that worked well. Mm. And then he would replicate those in other parts of the country. Right. So it's sort of this piecemeal approach. And allowed for a lot of decentralization. So one of the big problems under Mao was all the decisions were too centralized. Right. So it was very inefficient, didn't understand the differences um, in different parts of China, what their economic needs were. So he allowed different localities to come up with their own reforms. And that turned out to be really um, mm. uh, a good path forward, right? right? Rather than just saying, this is the one policy we're all going to do. Yeah. That was Mao's big folly in many ways. So he was able to do that, and the party adapted. And after him, another big adaptation was... Under uh, a successor, John Zemin, he, he said, look, we've made these changes. We've joined the global economy. How are we going to keep the Communist Party relevant? What we're going to do is we're going to tell entrepreneurs they're welcome into the party. Interesting. And this seemed heretical, right? right. The entrepreneurs yeah. as right. the princes of capitalism, how mm. could we possibly accept them into the Communist mm. Party? But this was so smart because as business people became wealthier, the Chinese Communist Party needed to figure out how to co-opt those people. They could not become an independent bourgeoisie, if you will, right. right? Where their economic and political power would become separate from the party. The party said, no, we need to make sure the new economic class is closely tied to the political class. Wow. And they've just managed to do this very well. So even though China has become more of a market economy, it is not a, quote, free yeah, market economy. Right. There's no such thing. As a free market economy. But anyway, that's a different (laughs) conversation we can have. So the state, for example, in China, still owns all land. Hmm. Okay? So let's say you were uh, an aspiring factory owner, right? And you want to open a factory with Nike. Well, both of you will have to come through me as the state official who oversees this tract of land. You have to get a lease from me. Hmm. And that makes local officials very powerful because they control access to land rights. And that's also a source of corruption. But anyway, but this is how the party, <laughs> this is how the party and government stay relevant. Right. Right? I mean, can you imagine if you're in San Anselmo, anytime anyone wanted yeah. to make investment in San Anselmo, they'd have to go see the mayor. Sure. The mayor owns all the land. And you have to deal with the mayor to figure out if you can build a house if you want to build a commercial building. Yeah. Think about how much power that means the mayor has. And that's just not the case, right? I couldn't even tell you who the mayor of San Anselmo is. <laughs> right. But I can tell you in China, everyone knows who the local party officials are because they control yeah. land rights. That so that's how the party is maintained hmm. um, its influence over the political class, and they also control all the financial institutions. That's the other way that they maintain power. So even if you're a private entrepreneur, if you want to take out a loan, you've got to take that loan out with a private bank. Or not a private bank, I'm sorry, a state-owned bank. That also takes some government connections yeah. hmm. in order to get a loan. That's, that's interesting. So there are all these ways in which the government still influences a lot of economic decision-making. And of course, the government builds all the infrastructure, right? right? And they control um, all the customs, what comes in, what comes out of the country. They control all the laws that determine you know, what kinds of goods and services can be imported in the country yeah. or not. So everyone knows the government has mm. the last say. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. It made me think of this line by John Dewey 
where he says, uh, politics is the shadow cast on society by big, uh, big business. And it seems that it's the reverse in China. Business is the shadow cast on society by maybe the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, obviously, it's not perfect, but it, just looking at you know, the power and influence of these two spheres, the political and, and the economic, and whether it be in our own country or in China, it's really interesting to see how uh, they work together. And what's fascinating is to just see how the seeds were sown for this sort of relationship that no one had seen before, communism and some version of capitalism. It sounds like decades ago, mm-hmm. um, slowly changing that then enabled it to probably supercharge itself more, uh, more recently. One of the questions I, I have, um, and I can't remember if it was Fried Zakaria, one of his first books, if he said that if you're trying to introduce democracy, the, the better model is to introduce some form of capitalism uh, to sort of whet the appetites of, of, of the people. And then naturally through a sense of choice, even if it's just over what goods and services they might have options to it, it what naturally then seems to uh, evolve is a desire for more uh, political choice. And I'm just wondering if you've seen that is that unfolding at all in China as people have more and more access as you know the mass have been lifted from poverty as there's more and more wealth being generated, more and more goods. Is there a desire for more sense of expression that's uh, that's beginning to take root or well, I hear two different questions there. Okay. So one is there a desire for more expression? Yes, okay, for sure. But that does not equate to a desire for more democracy. Okay. Okay. So I think that's a fallacy in the West oftentimes to Mm -hmm. think that as countries become wealthier, they're going to want to become more democratic. Sure. Right? Because that's the idea we have as Americans, that somehow liberal democracy and capitalism go hand in hand. Yeah. (laughs) But it is just not true. And I think they've done surveys in many countries. China's not unique in this way. Economic growth, if that's the first priority, Mm -hmm. people are willing to give up some of their political rights for that right Right? sure people are willing to give up uh being able to vote in election if it means that their material situation will improve so but in china anyway going back to china no yeah as a whole that is not the primary concern there are so many other things that chinese people are concerned with but i will tell you i forgot to mention this but one of the main reasons the party has been able to stay in power is it's it's an implicit social contract since the times of Deng Xiaoping, right? Since reform and opening in the late 70s, the implicit contract is the Chinese public lets the party continue to stay in power without making much of a fuss as long as the party continues to deliver economic growth. Right. As long as people's material conditions are improving, they leave politics up to the party. Hmm. And so far that bargain has kept up. Right. Right? And that's why... The Communist Party's first and top priority is economic growth. Yeah. And you have, to, you have to understand why that is, right? Can they bear to have lower levels of growth right. if it will create social unrest? You know, this is fascinating. And given you teach a course on China and India, maybe we can take a slight detour <laughs> comparing the two. Because I think it is a really interesting comparison. Both economies growing. Obviously, India is not to the degree of China, but both have gone through tremendous change. India is the world's largest democracy, China's communist system, um, and yet both, to varying degrees, are, have invited um, you know, people into their countries, so international trade and so forth. What I think is interesting, what I, having been to only Hong Kong, but 
spent a little bit of time in India, is in spite of this world's largest democracy, it seems like a lot of this freedom of choice is not quite trickling down to the economic level in the same way. There's not great infrastructure. It seems they have these separate little enclaves within their own power grids. Uh, and so you can really see in how many ways democracy doesn't quite seem to be working economically for the people in the same way. Is there a way that, as you have a much more nuanced understanding, how would you compare these two countries um, I guess economically and how that really has uh, impacted r respectively Indians and Chinese. Yes, this is a complicated. It is, this yeah, is a complicated issue. I think we're just doing what, a flyover yeah, from fifty thousand we'll feet, <laughs> but but go into it as much. What as a you lot like. of people will say today is, "Oh, look at China," and I hear yeah. business people say this all the time. Not just business people, just casually people mm. who've been to China or India. They say, "Well." When you go to China and you see the shiny new buildings and the, you know, fast trains and it's really clean yeah. in the cities and blah, 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 authoritarian governments are better at development. That's mm -hmm. what people will say, hmm. right? And things get done in China sure. faster. Whereas in India, that's always a lot of bureaucratic red tape <laughs> and like, there's so much money wasted in elections yeah, and, right. you know, the political turnover is so great, it's hard for them to have consistent policy. And to that I say, there are a few things you have to remember. I mean, one... The vision that the early independence leaders in India had was a really important one, which was Jawaharlal Nehru had this vision, like he wanted India to be a secular democracy. And they created this quite amazing constitution to keep this very, very diverse country yeah. in, in, one, in one state, well, excluding Pakistan, yeah. it's a different issue. Right. <laughs> but within Republic of India, um, there was a bargain that was made for India to be a democracy, right? And for it to be secular and to sort of recognize um, the diversity of the country. And I think that was a remarkable accomplishment in a lot of ways. And we could talk about all the ways in which India is inefficient uh, and how economic growth has been spotty. Right. <laughs> um, but I do think there was a great accomplishment there that's, that's often overlooked, right? And... India did not go through the types of political turmoil that China did mm. in the 60s, late 50s, 60s, and 70s. It did not go through that kind of turmoil. It mm. did go through the emergency. That was its own kind of turmoil. But even that is nothing compared to right. the Great Leap Forward or the famine, mm. right? I mean, China had the largest famine in the world right. in the late 50s. How many people died? 20 to 40 million people. I mean, that's yeah, staggering. Largest in history. Wow. And India had some famines, nothing on so what I say is we look at China yeah. today and we forget the terrible things that happened under authoritarian rule in China right. in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. We only look at the shiny China of today. Right. You know, we don't look at that part. So what I always tell students is that India, yes, it may be, quote, less efficient, mm -hmm. uh, but democracies are by nature less efficient. Yeah, right. Civic participation. But you right. can't have such dramatic political upheavals in the same way. And India's yeah. managed to stay true to its constitution, at least until recently. And that's, we could have a whole other podcast about what's going on in India. Yeah, so Things are sure, changing in is... India a lot. It's going more towards an authoritarian type rule, which is something right. we're seeing all over the world. But yeah. We definitely are seeing that in India. So Modi and his party are threatening the democratic underpinnings of yeah. India. We see that happening in a lot of yeah. places, but that is also happening in India. So, you know, in China, I would just say, let's not forget right. the Mao years, right? And the turmoil in China. And, and even though 
the Chinese leadership today would like Chinese people to forget about that mm-hmm. stuff. I don't want people to forget because under Xi Jinping, the current president of China, we are seeing a reconcentration of authority and political control. Right. And I think that is a negative trend. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting just uh, looking at history as you laid it out there's always costs. So even though there might be a lot of seemingly upside for those that are living in China today, you know, up to 40 million people dying, obviously there was a real cost. And the cost to maybe India is that things aren't as efficient. Maybe there hasn't been the same sort of generation of wealth. And yet there also wasn't that degree of famine. It may be authoritarianism in a way. So there's always pros and cons, which is helpful to be reminded of. Uh, Back to China. Um, So given that you were mentioning some of the rise of authoritarianism just globally, and maybe even in democracies like India, some people even think our own and throughout Europe and so forth, um, when we think about authoritarianism in China, um, there's a decent amount coming out about whether it be surveillance, about re-education camps for Uyghurs, uh, mm-hmm. so forth. To what degree are those things happening? And, and can that be a particular cost for our certain sort of civil liberties that may have never been there, even being further eroded, never have a chance to blossom? So how do you look at some of the perhaps upsides, uh, centralized planning, we see great infrastructure, this leapfrogging forward, and yet, is there is there a cost to citizens? I think so. And what I will say about China, and it takes a closer examination, but China has gone through periods of more and less openness. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, it was quite closed during the Mao years, and then when Deng Xiaoping came into power, there was a real opening in the 80s, which led to Tiananmen. Right. Right. That was a real flourishing of civil society, actually, in the 80s. And then it got clamped down after Tiananmen. Um, and even though at that point, Western observers were like, oh, China's on the verge of democratic revolution. Yeah. <laughs> From the point of the Communist Party, their, their conclusion was, we can never let that happen again. Right. We will re-exert control over society. We can never let what happened at Tiananmen happen again, because that will be the end of right. Communist Party rule. Right. And they've succeeded at that. Yeah. Right? They've succeeded at that. Now it's, what, 20 years, 30 years later? And there's never been a protest at that level. And that's with a lot of effort, right? Now when you go to Tiananmen Square, there are cameras everywhere. And, of course, with the surveillance, um, it's so extreme in China. But I will tell you something interesting. Most middle-class people that I've talked to, mm-hmm. or a lot of my students who come from middle, upper class families, they just take that in stride. Sure. doesn't bother them because they're not negatively affected by it, right? And they are still the benefactors of most of China's right. globalization and economic growth. However, there are a lot of people at the margins that are very affected, and we just don't hear their stories. Yeah. But those are people like, for example, now, you know, I don't know if you've read about this, but China is working on a social credit system. I'm not familiar. They announced it was going to happen in 2020, but I don't know if it's going to happen. But there's a lot of small experiments. So if you remember me saying one of the brilliant things Deng Xiaoping did was allow for local experiments, right? right? And I would say, oh, this region had a particularly good experiment. Let's try to replicate that. So that's what they've allowed different localities to do with the social credit system. But it's this idea that, you know, like we get a credit score, FICO Mm -hmm. score, right? That's do we pay our bills on time, et cetera, et cetera. They want to create a social credit score that's not just 
your financial um, responsibility, but it's your political, social responsibility. Oh, yeah. Right? Did you ever get caught posting something bad on social media? That's fascinating. And there, so there are different organizations, local governments and companies working on different algorithms wow. to give everyone a social credit score. That's... <laughs> And can you imagine? And that is meant to do what? Control Keep not the, just your financial behavior. But keep your the rabble in line. That's right. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. In this country, we have, uh, through social media, I'm not familiar with it really, I, I think a clout score, which is just looking at your uh, kind of influence on social media, which could have nothing to do with anything remotely, uh, what China's doing, whether it's almost more superficial. But it's fascinating because I, I imagine increasingly as we develop algorithms to be able to factor in all this data we're generating and our, like, what is our footprints online? Who are we in public? Who are we in private? And I think that's something that um, obviously civil liberties unions and uh, people that are concerned about that in our country are uh, bringing up just with this digital era. And there's many people that don't seem to care. And I'm wondering in yeah. China, because if this is a product of the Enlightenment, the idea of freedom of expression and this idea of public and private space, but if that's never really existed, then what's there to fight? What's there to compare it? Yeah, right. Exactly. And so I so it's so maybe it's uh you know, it's 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 basically outsiders that are being concerned. And I also heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that why probably China will become a leader in AI is that all of the phones that people are using, there's no such thing as privacy. And so these these AI algorithms are basically just pulling all this data from the biggest market uh, in, in the world. And so as a result, it will be able to uh, accelerate and evolve faster, which is, which is, which is interesting. There's no data privacy. <laughs> and they, you know, the government not only has access to all of your financial information, uh, through banking and stuff, but people often are astounded by the rapid rate at which China has moved from the cash economy. So the last time I was in China, it's already been seven years. I can't believe it. But even seven years ago, it was still mostly a cash economy. Yeah. And just in these last seven years, it's gone to almost a completely cashless society. I've heard of this thing in China where you can see people begging on the streets with a QR code. <laughs> and you can just like digitize some money to them kind oh of thing. my goodness so uh, but the point being that the government was all too happy to see all transactions go digital because then it can trace all right. transactions that makes sense right especially if all the financial in in intermediaries are either state-owned or under close state right. surveillance so yeah one of the reasons they're going to excel in AI is because they will have access to most of your digital footprint right. in all aspects of your life but just going back to some of the negative parts, there's already a list, a blacklist that's grown of people who've maybe failed to pay back an interest payment on a loan. Oh, wow. And it's affecting things like they won't allow you to buy plane tickets or they won't allow you to buy train tickets. Hmm. And it's already creating these sort of blacklists of people, right? Yeah. Um, now, look, there's plenty of surveillance. I mean, when people talk about surveillance capitalism, they're often talking about things that are happening in the U.S. So I don't sure. want to say there's this kind uh, of thing's yeah. not happening, right? What's course, Facebook yeah. doing with our data? Oh, like well, everyone's selling our data around. Yeah. It's affecting us. Um, and that's only going to increase here, too. Oh, yeah. So this is not a Chinese-only problem Absolutely. at all. I think it is interesting. It's more a question of what is, the, uh, I guess, the political filter one is putting on how one even sees uh, the scenario, and that's where there might be contrast in some respects between uh, just different countries and cultures, and 
uh, in, a, in a sort of, this is not at all uh, uh, related, but I think it is fascinating looking at just some cultural differences there with speaking of automation and AI and how there's going to be self-driving cars. And yet you have to, in the algorithm, you have to go, okay, it's a classic trolley problem in philosophy. You know, car in this case is going to hit a bunch of pedestrians or it can swerve and hit the wall, you know, and kill the driver. And most people say that's what it should do. Would you buy that car? No. But then when you're looking at the algorithms, who should be saved, who should be killed, if you have to actually factor that in, it does vary from culture to culture. Like, do you preserve the young or the elderly or who might it be? And I think it just helps recognize something that might seem relatively straightforward in a particular place is not elsewhere. And I think when we look at the idea of privacy, when we look at the idea of big data, who should be profiting... I mean, for all practical purposes, with search engines and social media, it's free, but it's not really free. And how many people would be willing to pay for Gmail or to searches or Wikipedia or whatever it might be or Instagram uh, to not have ads, uh, to have it be private versus how many we're so accustomed to free. Do we just accept that? the consequences might be people are going to be peering in and going, what exactly are you doing so I can sell you stuff? Well, let me just say, <laughs> let me just say, first of all, that I separate Wikipedia from all those other Ooh, Absolutely. Because it's a totally different type I of agree. And they don't yeah. profit from us. And actually, it's an extraordinary example right. of what the early internet pioneers right. thought the internet was going to be. And, and actually, actually, you should pay. You, you should pay. Like, I try to give every year a I little bit... Uh, uh, just because I think it is such an important service. It's something everyone can contribute to. And what is fascinating about it, there was a study done in Nature maybe 10 years ago. It may not be that long comparing Wikipedia. It may have just been five. Uh, and Encyclopedia Britannica because there was so much concern that if anyone can create content, how do we know it's actually accurate? We know a lot of it is deliberate, maybe even vandalism. Uh, and basically they found, they just looked at science articles and they found that Britannica and Wikipedia were essentially as accurate and had just as much error, which I found fascinating. Uh, I agree. Uh, so so, I, so I, I appreciate the distinction. I just, I, I separate Wikipedia. I, really I, I think there's something yeah. there. But you're right. All these other platforms, what are they in it for? Right. They're ultimately in it to make money. Right. Right? Exactly. And so... Uh, anyway, but in China, there's a little bit of a different emphasis that you said. I would say one of the big cultural differences is that in China, the prioritization is on the collective. What is best for the, quote, collective good right. is always more important than the individual. And in American culture, we tend to prioritize the individual right. over the collective, and that has its faults. Sure. Well, right? It's like not caring about your neighbors. Hyper-individualism. Hyper-individualism has Alienation. Its totally. Yeah. Lack for of community. In China, it's the opposite. Although, what's really sad is in the age of, um, you know, the growing market economy, they've also lost a lot of community hmm. feeling, which was right. very strong under Maoism, the sense of community. Uh, despite all the political turmoil, there were still strong social links in a way yeah. that have come apart, you know, with, with the encroachment of capitalism in China. But there's still an emphasis on collective. So there's a de-emphasis on individual, right? right? And that's where that sort of, mm -hmm. like dark area comes in where yes a right. few people might be hurt by this system or the other or this law or the other but that's like a necessary cost right yeah, of right. the collective good of sure. the country right and you look at the collective economic good and it's hard to dispute that sort of view uh as being yeah that's collectively been beneficial i think something that 
you know, it's easy as Americans uh, to, you know, maybe not think too much about. But I remember there was, you know, the whole collapse of the Wall Street banks and the whole 1%. Well, if you expand to a global level, I don't know if this is true, but I think people say, like, America is part of the 1% globally. And when you think about electricity, running water, some of the basic things that, that we just take for granted... There was a period of time where a lot of Chinese citizens did not have mm -hmm. those basics. And why wouldn't you want those very basics? Because obviously improved hygiene and, uh, and so forth is going to be beneficial to your health and longevity of you and your family. So it's almost a basic human right in a particular way. Um, and I think it's hard to argue with, with those basic necessities. But they don't just magically develop overnight. <laughs> There's... And so, so I think it's well worth uh, keeping that in mind. Uh, like the, the part that I wanted to dig in a little bit mm -hmm. deeper was looking at it's more about the collective than the individual. How do, how do people create a sense of community? Obviously, some has been lost in the quest for greater economic uh, development. Uh, is, it, is it dictated by the Communist Party? What are the ways that you can generate a sense of community and community voice that's not just overseen? Uh, how does it happen? Great question. And I would say in many ways there are more limited forms okay. of community. Because with the government, remember I mentioned Tiananmen. So what the government yeah. fears the most is too large of collective organization and community that is not in its control. So, for example, if you, you know, they're very wary of NGOs, any kind of NGO, so any kind of non-governmental organization has to be sanctioned by the government. You can't yeah. just open an NGO, right? It has to be approved. It has to be licensed. And that's to, again, keep political control over social organizations. So, given that, how do people form community if we yeah. think that's a natural human desire, which I think it is, as social animals? There are a couple different ways that you do it. One is online communities. That's a big way people connect. They find an online community. And, but again, here's where the government kind of steps yeah. in to intervene. WeChat is sort of the biggest social media platform. But within WeChat, you form these groups. But no group, if I remember correctly, is allowed to have more than 500 members. Interesting. Okay? And that's a way to limit, if you will, the number of members in that group, mm. even online. And most people self-censor. Right? You right. don't write about things too political. You don't say bad things about Xi Jinping, et cetera, et cetera. But people nonetheless can share ideas. They are there certain topics things. that are banned that you explicitly can't form a group around X? You just don't. You just you, you don't say anything negative about Xi Jinping. Okay, so about... Period. About, okay. Or about, I imagine, the party. Yeah. It, there can be some room for local criticism, okay. like criticism of local officials. Okay. In fact, there was a time when the central government sort of um, almost encouraged it just because it would allow them to clamp down on any local officials that were really acting, right? you know, acting out. Um, and that, but even that is sort of limited, right? But you would never openly criticize the party leadership. That is just a no-no. And there are clever ways that people in online communities have circumvented the censors. You right. know, so when Me Too was coming out in Chinese, you couldn't do hashtag Me Too in English, but they would do hashtag Me Too. Me mm -hmm. is rice oh. and Too is bunny. So they would use these two <laughs> characters that sounds like Me Too, but it's Me Too. And they would use that hashtag 
to talk about the Me Too movement. Fascinating. So there's all these kind of little ways that oh, that's people on social media will try to circumvent censors. I just started uh, reading this book by, I think, Stephen Greenblatt called Tyrant, Shakespeare, and Politics. And apparently the whole thesis of the book is that Shakespeare was able to, through an oblique angle, talk about current politics, but through the lens of history and ancient Rome and Greece. So not directly being able to critique because of course that would put you in uh in, in, a, in hot water and it sounds like people are able to figure out coded ways uh which is really fascinating and, and it seems almost inevitable right people have to be able to express if if there are if for example me too uh if those things are happening and there's now it's a, a kind of a global stage in social media um that's that's fascinating how that happens you know i'm wondering uh, just thinking of on a local level, there might be room for some sort of critique of local officials, but now we're even seeing on a global level, there's a lot more pushback. So uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm very, I was very fascinated with what happened with China and the NBA, which had been almost, you could say, a love story in terms of uh, basketball becoming this international game. Uh, David Cern in the 80s really saw this, and I think China... I don't know how they became interested in basketball, but 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 there are Nate. I think there are 400 million basketball fans in China. I think 10% of its revenue is in the Chinese market alone, and so Daryl Morey. And there was a number of games that are increasingly being played in China in preseason uh, and so forth. And a lot of the stars from LeBron James to Steph Curry, you know, will 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 make it a part of their. Uh, off season to go to China and and connect and develop their own brand, so to speak. Uh, so there were some games I think in Shanghai and some other places in China. And right as this was all happening, I think maybe it was late summer. I can't quite remember early fall. Daryl Morey, the general manager for the Houston Rockets, who had the biggest Chinese basketball t- uh, star of all time, Yao Ming, who played for the Houston Rockets. And so so this is what even makes it like the plot thickens. Uh, uh, sends out this tweet, which I think was like stand with Hong Kong. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was probably some, you know, he's just sort of forwarding. And the backlash that he received uh, as this is underway, they're going to unplug these games. And there's this immediate concern. How do we manage this? Uh, and uh, ultimately, it sounded like the Chinese government wanted the NBA to fire Daryl Morey. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that. We have freedom of speech in this country. But there was such concern that billions of dollars could be lost or, you know, who knows how many hundreds of millions were probably being lost in the, in the process as, as this whole situation was, uh, was, uh, was hemorrhaging. So I guess I wanted to bring that within the larger context as it's, and the NBA is a flashpoint, what happened with... I imagine as more and more other countries and businesses are coming in, I remember hearing that it's not just the NBA, BMW to, to market. They had a ad with the Dalai Lama that they had to remove. And so there's a number of things that we might not think about, but to appease. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating that China has such clout and power that it's able to kind of enforce its will to a way, or it might says, we're just going to say no. So, so, so I guess, can you unpack what's happening with... 
I guess the idea of freedom of speech, which might be something that we encourage, but as soon as it clashes with the Chinese market and uh, the country, what, what happens? How do, how do things move forward? Well, let me go back for a second, because it's important to understand why did China get upset about this. Yeah, so let's right. start with that, yeah, because exactly. what... it ties back into the fact that in China, the government wants to hold on to a very specific narrative, right? That the Communist Party is in charge, and all these territories that it controls are undoubtedly part of China. Right. So that's what you have to understand, too, about the Dalai Lama. Even though the Dalai Lama no longer vies for Tibetan independence. He right. doesn't even talk about that anymore. No. But he's still seen as a sort of rogue person by the right. Chinese government, right? Like, this weak old man, like, he cha- is challenging the Chinese <laughs> government in some way. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but they, they don't yeah. want any criticism of that particular narrative, Tibet is part of China. Right. Xinjiang is part of China. So that's China's yeah. business. Right. No one else is, no one on the outside is supposed to critique oh, whatever Chinese yeah. policy is, okay? Same with Hong Kong. Hong so, Kong came back to China in 1997. It is right. undisputably part of China. Right. Anyone who comments on Hong Kong and the protests is insulting Sure. That Chinese name. So what happened in Hong Kong? Because not everyone's probably fully aware up to date. So so what exactly was the clash between Hong Kong and Oh my gosh, well this China? could be a whole lecture, but let me just but say I guess what are the broad strokes yes, as to why there was such protest that Daryl would even be compelled to be like stand with Hong Kong. Yes. So it started with an extradition bill mm-hmm. that the Hong Kong government wanted to get passed in the Hong Kong local legislature. Yeah. Okay. And it was a bill that would allow um, people suspected of a crime to be extradited from Hong Kong. And this was a big deal to a lot of Hong Kong people because what it signaled to them was that if you did something wrong within Hong Kong, because right now it has its own legal system, right? But the idea was, the fear was maybe someone in Hong Kong does something the Communist Party doesn't like. And now the Hong Kong government could extradite that person to, to China. Which right now they can't do that. Right. At least not technically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it happens sometime, time, time. But, but anyway, so that set off alarm bells. And the first protests in Hong Kong were over this issue. Right. That a lot of Hong Kong residents did not want this extradition bill to be passed. Sure. There, that's what a lot of the protests were about over the summer. Because yeah. Carrie Lam, the leader of Hong Kong, who is an ally of the party, we could go into that, but she's not popularly elected by the people as such. Yeah. So she wouldn't let go of it at first. Okay, so there were protests and protests and protests, and finally she did say, fine, we're going to shelve the bill. But so many months had passed already that sort of all the other grievances that Hong Kong had Hmm. about the state of Hong Kong, they couldn't let any of it go. So it just turned into more and more demands. Um, And the issue is, so Hong Kong was for a long time since the Opium War, was a colony of Britain, right? In 1997, it was... It was became again part of the PRC, or it was never part of the PRC, but it's now part of China again, I yeah. should say. And there was a negotiation that happened in the eighties between Thatcher and the Chinese Communist Party about the conditions over that handover. Right. And in that agreement, at some point, the Communist Party was supposed to let Hong Kong have elections. Right. Okay. And that's one of the disputed things for a long time. Like, when is Beijing going to let Hong Kong have real elections? Yeah. Because they're, they're, the elections are controlled in ways we won't go into right now. But it's not like open elections for the local legislature and the leader of Hong Kong. So that's been connected. So it's sort of like the extradition bill brought out all of these other yeah. issues that 
people in Hong Kong feel the Chinese government is encroaching on one country, two systems, right? Because Hong Kong has its own legal system. It has its yeah. own political system. It has its own freedoms that the mainland doesn't have, right? You can use Twitter in Hong Kong. You can use Facebook. You can use Google. You have a different identity card in Hong Kong. You don't carry right. a Chinese passport. So it's a very strong identity of right. a lot of Hong Kongers, they call themselves. Uh, and all that's being called into question right now. Right. So the extradition bill was like the straw that broke the yeah. camel's back in many ways. And so now young people are out there and people say, what's the hope for them? How can little Hong Kong with a few million people yeah. fight Goliath? Right. Right? Um, in many ways they can't. But young people say, we can't do anything else. Right. All we can do is fight for the things we believe in. Which and, is fascinating because, <clears throat> as well in mainland China since Tiananmen, there hasn't been the same sort of opposition. And given that, you know, there is, it was quite sizable, it seemed. I don't know what the numbers were, but it was generating at least global headlines. Yes. Uh, and, and obviously that's not the narrative that uh, Beijing wants, uh, you know, at all. So, so, so it is fascinating just seeing uh, how that's also, because so much of... I think a lot of the narrative was positive, the economic growth, the economic miracle, and then this is a blight, I would imagine, uh, on, on, on that kind of a record and perception globally. So, the Chinese government, go, to go back to the NBA thing, yeah. the Chinese government is very sensitive about its narrative, right? <laughs> right. Everyone is prospering under communist party yeah. rule, including Hong Kong, and no one else is supposed to criticize that, and so... When this guy, even though it's a small, minor tweet, people yeah. would think, who cares? Right. I mean, people tweet things every day these days that I guess they're not <laughs> supposed to take seriously. Why does this right. matter? Yeah. But it matters because for the Chinese, it's this pride issue, right? Sure. How can the NBA, who's making so much money in China, right. possibly say they stand with Hong Kong? That is in direct contradiction to our narrative of like, the Beijing, you know, Communist Party leadership is correct and is managing this in the right way because what he tweeted right. seemed to suggest that somehow the the residents of Hong Kong have some right to be upset. Right. Right? right. So it's of counter course, yeah. to that narrative. But when you look closely at so many of the Chinese Communist Party's reactions to many different mm -hmm. kinds of criticisms, this falls right in line with a lot of those other sure. types of criticism. Sure. You know, the BMW and the Dalai Lama thing. Or recently there was a Leica camera ad, okay. which is super interesting. I don't know if you saw it. It I was didn't. made by one of those really fancy ad companies. And it was all about like because you know Leica has those kind of old school kind mm -hmm. of cameras that are super expensive. And I was like, you want your like at the right moments. And they pulled this original footage from Tiananmen. Oh, wow. And the implication was, you want to be there at the right time with the right equipment. Yeah, and the Chinese right. government just went crazy. Like, you can't have an ad like that. Now, was this actually for the Chinese consumer? It was no. a global ad. Oh, well, that's fascinating. But but they're now intervening outside of their country, which is, is that is that accurate? Because... Uh, a lot of the Chinese cell phone manufacturers use Leica components. Oh. So it's the same kind of thing. It's like oh. Leica, you do a lot of business in China. Hmm. You do not want to have that ad out there that we don't like. We might cut the business with you. Now, and this gets to, I guess, the heart of the matter. To what degree is that position working for China? Um, meaning our countries that... Because, you know, I think the interesting thing is within a capitalist economy we like to extol the virtues of this revolutionary past 
or you know whether it be the 60s or a lot of the things that make us feel proud um, of, of, of I guess that particular uh, background and yet it's really just to sell products it's like when it's like people aren't actually doing what it takes it seems to really move the needle socially or environmentally but if I buy this camera somehow I am so 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 it's kind of ironic in a way that we use it to sell stuff and uh, and obviously the Chinese are going to be well that's offensive to our narrative so you can't do it are I guess did Leica pull the commercial and they did. Yeah. So then what do you see moving forward? How does that uh, impact as, as the economy is becoming global and you're saying it's a global commercial. So now there aren't just local commercials, but there's global commercials, global movies. To what degree do you think China will be able to not only sh you know, shape this global narrative of itself, but potentially even instill some of its values uh, abroad? Uh, to where people will maybe stop even doing it because it might be anything that's too controversial, anything that paints whatever country or culture in the wrong way, even if it's true, uh, it's just not worth it economically. That's a good question. Yeah. And I, and I'm very wary of making predictions. Of course, <laughs> of course. Uh, but what I would say is it's worked so far well for yeah. them because the Chinese market is so important. But... There are some limits to that. Hmm. And I think there is starting to be a little bit of a backlash hmm. to the Chinese soft power story of like, we're just promoting harmonious whatever development is like their motto. And you're seeing this in different parts of the world where the Chinese have made a lot of investments. You're starting to see these glimmers of pushback. So I think there will be more limits to that and the Chinese government will have to tread carefully. Um, and there's also, with the trade war, there's the danger of what the economists call decoupling, right? That because of the tensions of the trade war with the U.S. right now, American companies are more wary of investing in China for a number of reasons. So as American companies move their production elsewhere, that's the decoupling of the two economies, yeah. right? So will it be possible in the long run, there will be more companies that have decided not to make China their, their main manufacturing hub or even their main market? If that starts to happen, then China's ability to intervene will lessen, hmm. right? But that's only, we're just starting to see the beginnings of it. There are certain products for which you really can't find any of the components except in China. So yeah. there'll be a long time before that gets completely decoupled. But there are other areas where you might start seeing that a little bit more. And it also depends on whether or not the Chinese economy keeps continuing to grow. Right. It's already slowing down a little bit. And it's trying to rely more on domestic consumption like the American economy right yeah. as a post-industrial society but there are limits to that too so as its economy slows down I also wonder mm -hmm. you know whether um, the influence will stay and some of these negative stories we're hearing as a result of their investments abroad the story is shifting a little bit yeah. so we'll see I don't think right. it's just a growth trajectory. China's influence is just in one direction in every yeah. way. You know, I think right. the story will be more complicated. Yeah, inevitably. Inevitably. <laughs> inevitably. Uh, you know, another topic uh, I wanted to talk about uh, was uh, religion in China. And, and this is, I think, pretty fascinating because uh, most people that are aware of uh, China in recent history that with the emergence of communism, which is not unique to China, generally uh, it eclipses religion. 
uh, Karl Marx famously said, religion is opiate of the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, so that, of course, was, uh, I guess, for a number of decades was the case that, you know, uh, religion was kind of removed in some sort of capacity, but now it's, 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 you know, there's a resurgence, not only in say traditional Chinese religion, Taoism and Buddhism, but also in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I guess some people might see that room for, uh, celebration. Others might think it's negative, but nonetheless, it's happening. What, what can account for not only this, uh, this interest, again, this resurgence, but even the Communist Party allowing for religion, which is some form of expression, uh, to uh, emerge? Well, so, again, I'll give you my take on this. Yeah. It could be right or wrong, but I'm glad we came back to this because remember when you were talking about how do Chinese people form community? Yeah. And I would say that's probably one of the primary reasons from my observation of why a lot of Chinese are drawn to Christianity. And particularly in these small underground churches, that's where most people practice, is like in people's homes, right? Yeah. Where you just have maybe between 8 and 20 people get mm. together once or twice a week. And if they're reforming those kinds of social bonds. They're singing. They're helping each other. Yeah. They're talking about their problems. They're mm. praying together. And that's a really moving thing to see. Actually, right. I've seen that hmm. in action, and it's pretty powerful. Right. Um, so I think that vacuum of the, the total ideology of communism is gone, <laughs> right? So it's left this vacuum behind. People are looking for a purpose. People are looking for community. And uh, Christianity could fill that in some ways. I've seen that, and and as I said, it's powerful because it's not materially driven or not always materially driven, right? And I think in a society today which is so materially driven in many ways, this is like a respite from that, right? People are getting together not to start a business, not to talk about money, not to talk about the problems of the world, but to help each other, to be with each other. I think that's kind of cool. So initially, the party kind of thought this was okay. That's great. People want to get together. They kind of ignored it. Um, I don't know if you know this about China, but there are a couple officially recognized religions. And technically speaking, if you're a member of each other's religions, you're supposed to belong to this state-run organization. So there's one for Islam. Okay. There's one for Protestantism. And there's one for Catholicism. Hmm. Okay? Um, but a lot of these smaller house churches are not necessarily part of those state-run organizations. Yeah. But that was a way for the party to sort of oversee religion. So, for example, Catholicism is fascinating. The last thing the Communist Party wants is for a Chinese person's allegiance to be to some foreigner, the Pope. So the funny thing about Chinese Catholicism is they have their own party-selected bishops, which have nothing to do with the Catholic Church. That's fascinating. And as a Chinese Catholic, you're not supposed to pledge your allegiance to the Pope. You're supposed to practice Mm -hmm. within this Chinese right. government authorized Catholic church system. It's not funny. It's like yeah. the most bizarre thing. So the Catholic church has no formal relationship with the Chinese government because of this. Yeah. Um, same thing with Islam. There's, a, there's an organization that's supposed to govern Muslims and Muslim practice. And then there's this Protestant uh, arm. But most of these South churches, as I said, aren't part of that. But some of them have gone from being, you know, 8, 20, 30 people in house to they rent out office buildings. On the weekend, they might have thousands of people coming. So I think people are looking for that community, thinking about purpose, 
Um, that's a reason. But as you said, it's not just Christianity. There's lots of other religions. But I think those are also community-based. It's sort of right. going back to ancestral roots, having the meetings once a year of the clan, right? Like your clan mm-hmm. comes from a particular part of China, which in the past was very commemorated. Like there are people who keep detailed records of the family trees of these clans, right? right. And they would hold annual get-togethers and things. So there's a revival of that, yeah. I think, and a lot of other rituals. But for people interested in that, I would just say there's this book, The Souls of China by Ian Johnson, which um, really goes deep into people's lives who are seeking that purpose and spirituality in different ways in China. So that's kind of the reason I see it's popular. Again, filling a social community role in society for which there aren't a lot of pathways to do that in person. Right. Um, But the government is clamping down a little bit on Hmm. the biggest work. So there have been some high-profile cases where they've toppled churches, toppled mosques. Oh, if they become too they powerful become because too they're too threatening. So they haven't even become threatening yet, but they want to but, nip it before it becomes threatening. But, but there's a potential. There is. Uh, because as soon as you... And, and that's what I was curious, that if you have... Uh, if you aggregate all these little house churches and you run an office building with thousands of people or a thousand people, is that perceived as a threat? Is there a tipping point that maybe the Chinese people are kind of going, hey, we can grow to this size, and after that it's a problem. Uh, because I imagine a thousand people might start at least getting at least local uh, party leaders' awareness. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And hmm. those are the kind of questions we don't know um, what will happen right. in the future. But at least the places that have built their own churches, those are the places that the government's gone after gone after first Hmm. right where they've raised enough money to build their own building and put a big cross on it that is sort of challenging in a more direct way you know even the office building kind of thing i mean depends on what they decide to do if they decide oh we're here on a sunday together the thousand of us we're upset about um i don't know what you know whatever thing that's happening to me let's march down to the local officials offices do a sit-in in front of his house to protest something. Well, you can bet at that point, right. the government would really clamp down. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you remember Falun Gong. I do. From the yeah. 90s, right? If you go to the Chinese yeah. consulate today in San Francisco, you'll still see Falun Gong people outside uh, of the consulate protesting. And so what was so threatening was that it became so large. It's because it became political. It became political. All they those were... people would go and they would sit. They sat. I can't remember how many people it was, but it was like, maybe... A thousand people, I you know, don't quote yeah. me, I don't remember the numbers, but they went and they sat kind of at the front gates of where all the Communist Party officials okay. live. Right. That was just very visual. They didn't do anything. They yeah. didn't burn anything. They right. didn't say They just sat there. Yeah. And that was perceived as threatening. Or they went and they sat. I think there was one day they sat in Tiananmen Square hmm. practicing their yeah. They didn't have a particular, I don't think they had a particular goal. But it was you know? coordinated action. It was coordinated. And I think that that's obviously threatening if you're trying to maintain a particular narrative. Why are those people doing it? It probably creates questions, at the very least, within the average person. Exactly. Is it a protest? Is it a prayer? Is it, who knows what it is? And I think that's why the government tries so hard to censor those images from Tiananmen. Because if Chinese people saw that, and same with the Hong Kong protest images, right. they, they do all kinds of fake news kind of thing. When that news comes back into China, it's portrayed in a very different way. <laughs> But my interpretation of that is, why don't they want to see pictures of the tank man yeah. on the internet? Right. The power 
It's one of the most iconic images of the 20th century. Exactly. I mean, it really is. It's one of those images that that really captures so much. Not just about that particular uh, time and place, but so much of what people versus government versus military. And, and, uh, yeah, and it's amazing what one image can actually do, how it can inspire. And you know what's interesting to me? I mean, so much attention gets focused on that, and I can see why, and I teach that in my class, the one man versus the tanks. But actually... The pictures of the millions of people on the streets of Beijing are even more powerful because you just can't imagine that in modern Beijing, right. that the entire city would come out on the street yeah, and stand. Because it was like, yes, that man was captured, but tons of people were getting in front of tanks. People right. were shoving things into the tank exhaust pipes. People were banging on the tanks. People were blowing up cars. Um, and to see that, to see wow, the yeah. collective spirit of people to say, this is our country. Yeah, we don't agree with what the party's doing. We want to, we, we want to intervene in that. You just can't imagine that happening. And it's today. not that long ago. It really wasn't. Which, and I think any time you see that, you're, the, the younger generation is reminded um, yeah. of, of maybe their grandparents you know, were there, or you know, potentially could have been. And so what, what has changed so much or has perhaps not changed? You know, final question, because I know this could go on for a lot longer, but I, 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 I was very curious, what, what, what is the, um, the relationship that the Chinese people have with Ai Weiwei, the, the very globally renowned um, artist? And, and I know that it's, uh, he's obviously controversial, uh, but is he known or no. is he censored? So, so, they, so people don't even know who he is. No. In that. China, most people don't even know who he is. Right. Isn't that really interesting? It's like my students, if I ever mm-hmm. mention Ai Weiwei, they go, who? Oh, yeah. They don't even know who he is. Oh, I remember when I, this was a number of years ago, when I was teaching global studies, a freshman class, and after my unit on China, I was like, should I show this documentary about Ai Weiwei? And I think it was called Never Sorry or something like that. And And I had a... You know, a good, I don't know if it was half, but a solid quarter of the students were Chinese, and I knew that it'd be controversial. So I wanted to make sure I had enough rapport with them, uh, and and I wound up showing it, and immediately they're googling, and they were just like, "This guy's a terrorist," yes. because they're looking at. And I said, "Listen, let's watch it. You can make up your mind. That's fine." And it was interesting afterwards. A number of these students, some come up privately or email. They didn't even want to have a conversation. Some that were maybe a little bit more apprehensive, like this guy's a hero, but they but they didn't feel that they could actually vocalize it or do it around uh, other peers, which I thought was interesting. Some people were like, you know what, I appreciate what he's saying. I just think the way he's doing it's not appropriate. So it became much more nuanced once there was that experience. And in a similar way, um, uh, learning about Buddhism, uh, one of my colleagues wanted to show uh, Martin Scorsese's film Kundun about the Dalai Lama. And he's like, oh, it's so beautiful. And I said, well, you realize the Dalai Lama is obviously quite controversial. And I just felt that you'd need a certain amount of scaffolding. But I wound up trying, all right, you've shown it before. Let's do it. Beautiful movie, but obviously the way it portrays the Chinese is its caricature. So you could see why the Chinese students would respond the way that they did. There were some students, and these were wonderful students, literally not turning their back away from the movie, not watching it. And I was like, all right, pause. We, we have to be able to address this. And I said, okay, you have with their strong opinions. We're going to research about the Dalai Lama, about Tibetan Buddhism. You can look at your sites, but you also have to 
be able to cross-reference like any good research is. So look at your sites, but here, make sure you at least look at some other points of view. Mm -hmm. Then make up your mind. And I said, most important, let's hear what the Dalai Lama has to say, especially in relation to what he is, uh, you know, his, his positions allegedly are. And what was fascinating is that when you give him that sense, yeah, read those sites, but, you know, look at the, you know, cross-reference and see what he has to say. Yeah, some people are like, not every Chinese student was had a strong opinion, but but some really did. And then some were like, yeah, he seemed like a really good guy. Or some were like, I don't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, which is almost a really good position to be in, but obviously challenging existentially when you've had a sense of faith, and then you're going, well, I'm not sure. And as you were, I think, alluding to with the BMW commercial, the Dalai Lama's latest position, as far as I understand, is not trying to create an autonomous, you know, autonomous region. He just wants to be able to preserve the Tibetan language and culture in some sort of capacity. But he's like, yeah, we're part of China. And so it is interesting how he's perceived as, as a terrorist when his whole narrative has really changed, it seems. Ne like, never that it's just hard for us to conceive him as a terrorist in those kind of lights. But, uh, but, but it was just another really interesting example of if one's a teacher or one's interacting with just other other cultures, being aware of history, being aware of what are those triggers and how can one facilitate a thoughtful conversation, um, but but in respectful ways. And It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but, but it's really important it because is this important. is one of many examples of where we need to be able to come to terms as a, as a, as a human species. We have different approaches of political philosophy, of economics, but at the end of the day, there's also something universal. There's something about being human, regardless of where we're from and what we might believe that, that we can uh, connect about. I think sometimes we lose sight of, of what, what we have in common. I agree. I, well, I would also just say you have to understand that critical thinking is not emphasized. Yeah. Right. In right. Chinese, I mean, maybe we could say even in American education, maybe it's not emphasized enough. But I would, but I would just say that my understanding, based on you know the Chinese students I've had in my class, critical thinking is not always emphasized. And again, there's no room for political critique in that way, especially not sure. public critique. Right. So students are not comfortable with that. And sometimes with the right um, classroom and the right teacher. They come to their own critical thinking. Right. And I always encourage them when I say, look, yeah, you come up with your own conclusions, but you need to hear yeah. what the facts are. I, you brought up the Dalai Lama. I don't know if you know about the 13th Panjin Lama. Have you heard about this oh, kid? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I often use this kid as an example because, you know, this 13th Panjin mm -hmm. Lama who was chosen by the Dalai Lama to succeed the 12th, you know, as the reincarnation of the 12th Panjin Lama, not to go into all the details, but the... Chinese Communist Party wanting to control mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhism right. in the Dalai Lama's absence picked their own yeah. 13th Panjim Lama and this kid became the youngest political prisoner ever. Yeah. He was nine years old, yeah. never seen again. Right. Right? And the Chinese students, of course, have never heard of him. Yeah. And I always bring this up as, you know, here's the story, you, you don't know anything about him. Right. But this is the extent to which the party wants to control right, right religious social organizations. Um, as, as a sort of like, let's just talk about this. And, uh, oh, well, I should say, one of the things I teach in my class is, in every country, 
children in public schools are taught a certain version of history. And it is meant to shine a bright light on the government's version of what that history is. And you don't realize that when you're a kid. It happens to us as Americans too. And a lot of students don't until college or if they have a good high school teacher Mm. uh, get to challenge that official narrative. Right. right, and hopefully, and that's part of what going to college is. It's like, oh my gosh, open your eyes to the fact that there might be multiple historical perspectives, right. there were facts that were overlooked, etc. Right, and one of the challenging things in China is like they just they don't necessarily have that. And now some of my mm-hmm. students do, and some of the right. universities they'll have a teacher who's willing to kind of stand out there on a ledge yeah. and say something that's a little different from the official narrative. But a lot of my students tell me. Professors don't want to do that a lot of times. Now. Sure. They can get in trouble. So they will sure. have those conversations in private if the student wants to, not necessarily yeah. in the classroom. But I just wanted to say, one time I was studying Spanish down in Guatemala, and the textbook uh, was talking about Guatemalan mm. history, which, by the way, still says Columbus discovered America, which I was blown away by. But anyway, <laughs> there was this young American girl. She was like a, probably in high school from the Midwest. Mm. I can't remember where. And she was practicing her Spanish. She was reading a couple pages of this history book. And it came to 1950, I can't remember if it was 55 or something, but the American government through the CIA mm-hmm. toppled the first democratically elected government yeah. in Guatemala. Right. And she read that and then she became outraged. She was like, wow. what is this book full of lies? Wow. Our government would never do that. Wow. Yeah. And it turned into this whole thing where the teachers were trying to calm her down. They were trying to tell her, yes, this really did happen. Sure. But you know, so many people everywhere are steeped in the official narrative, right? Oh, yeah. This isn't just Chinese students, and I just of, want to be clear about that because this happens in the U.S. all the time that there's a desire to downplay whatever the yeah. ugly past is. Um, at Berkeley, we're always trying to air that dirty laundry, but I'm not—I <laughs> don't know if that's true everywhere in the country. Well, it's, I think it's clearly not, and and it's uh, and I think it's become even more insidious uh, when everyone can is in their own filter bubble with the various algorithms just feeding them what they want to hear or watch or see, and never mind even having whatever understanding of, of you know of history. But I can remember it being whitewashed, whether it be slavery oh uh, and and whatnot, and and I think again there's. Now, that narrative has changed a bit over the generations since the 60s. It's by no means perfect. But then as what you're mentioning, say, interventions not just in Guatemala, but in Iran, um, throughout, really throughout the world, to be able to sway countries in a particular way uh, that, that had our interests at stake, even if it was not in the interests of the people of that particular place. And that's something that I think a lot of Americans are shocked to hear in such a way that like people have a hard time even accepting it because it's so counter to the image of our country. Uh, and yeah, so I think that's an interesting note is that there's many, many narratives and perspectives in one country in one time. Uh, never mind when we start becoming global and, and it's rather than always uh, critiquing people that are different or places that are different, which there might be a place for that. What, what can we also learn? Yeah. And I think the one thing that, that really stands out, not just about China, but I think in Asia in general, is how the, the, the collective is more important than the individual. And that's something that I think we really lost sight of in a way that it is, we, the individual is important, but if we lose sight of the collective or the community, 
then it just can lead to alienation and despair. But ultimately, even the most powerful individual needs a team, needs, needs to be part of something larger than itself. And there might be a lot that we can uh, learn by Appreciate opening up this conversation. Well, what I, what I think is really concerning in American politics right now, it's like we're two countries right. with two different narratives, two different visions of what right. America is or America stands for and being reinforced right. by these bubbles of information. And this is really sad to me. This is sad. This is yeah. not the days of Walter Cronkite where everyone watched the same yeah. news, right? No, he was the arbiter of facts. Nobody has the same set of facts anymore. What do we do in this world? Yeah, and unfortunately, it's not even the. There's five different versions. There's you know, hundred million different versions potentially, and so so it really becomes an interesting question and challenge. And perhaps next podcast we can circle back to this country <laughs> and, and then look at in what's the election year. Here. Okay, yeah, we'll exactly. do that next time. Well, thank you so much, Crystal. This was fascinating, informative, enlightening, even. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun it. for me. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, we'll do it again. Let's do it again.